As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Hello, good to have you with me. It's Justin Briley, Premier's Theology and Apologetics Editor, welcoming you to another edition of the show, brought to you by Premier, SBCK and NT Wright Online. And today, Tom's going to be looking at your questions on the New Testament. You've sent in a variety of questions and he'll be doing his best to answer some of them. Uh, by the way, if you do enjoy today's show, then do check out our show page at askntwrite.com where you can sign up to ask a question yourself and you can find more resources from the show as well as ways to give. And we do love it when you tell others about the podcast, especially if you can rate and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, Moyo in Nigeria got in touch to say, NT Wright has helped me see things in a new way. I always learn something new when I listen to his answers to questions. From his answers to questions, you can tell that he is a writer as well. Thank you very much, Moya. Great to know you're listening from Nigeria. And wherever you're listening from, uh, do let others know about the podcast by rating and reviewing. It helps others to see it as well. For now, let's dive into your questions today. Well, welcome back to another edition of the show. And we're really getting into the core of what we often do on this show. We often discuss cultural issues, pastoral issues, but today we're doing the New Testament. And uh, we've got a few questions that have come in on this. Uh, there are so many, so many questions to always choose from when it comes to questions around the Gospels and other parts of the New Testament, Tom. But uh, we're, we'll see what comes up on today's show. Um, let's dive straight in. Um, And this is from Seth, who asks, thanks for your efforts in the podcast. Supremely helpful on a regular basis, both in my life and those with whom I share my life with. My question is in regards to the story of the woman caught in adultery. And this, of course, is in John's gospel, I believe. Uh, My question to Tom relates to your role as a translator and interpreter and your understanding of the inspiration in regards to this text. Many Christians don't really care, know or understand the notes within their Bibles, stating that this story is exempt from the earliest and best manuscripts. Furthermore, it's often a bailout from believers when attempting to justify a morally questionable behaviour or set of beliefs. The same is true for usage of many popular level preachers and teachers. But Tom, what do you do with this passage? Why is it still in our Bibles? Why do leaders and Bible teachers avoid teaching their congregations about its textual nature? Are we to consider it canonical and thus inspired? When it comes down to it, it wasn't in the original manuscripts. So how can we keep it and at the same time maintain integrity? I'm not trying to bait you here just the sake of drawing out answers. 
Um, and then there are some further questions around inspiration, which we'll perhaps leave for later. But that's the core of the question. The woman caught in adultery. It is a wonderful story, Tom. Um, and uh, many people will know it well. Uh, and that Jesus, uh, as the people come to stone her, says, um, you know, he who's without sin cast the first stone and uh, they all go away. And um, he says, where are your accusers? And uh, go, go and sin no more and so on. I'm probably not doing it justice there, but that's <laughs> just going on memory of the story but as as yeah, uh, yeah. seth says here there is a note in most bibles you'll find a note saying this story doesn't appear in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of john's gospel so should it be there at all on that basis um and what do we do with its sort of status is, is it therefore inspired if um if it's got this sort of caveat around it what what are your thoughts on all all of it, this conundrum, Tom? Yes, it, it's th thank you. It's uh, and and thanks to um, Seth from South Africa f for for the question. This is a classic example of uh, the way in which we have to look sooner or later at the early manuscripts, and that's a very complicated issue. Um, I don't know if everyone who sees this podcast literally sees the podcast, but um, if you can see at the back of. Um, my Greek Testament, there is a whole list of all the early manuscripts, and it goes on page after page after page. I'm scrolling through three, four, five, six pages, and it's, it's just massive. Um, now, when uh, the Reformers translated the Bible in the 16th century, they had very few of these manuscripts, hardly any. Um, and then over the last particularly two or three centuries, more and more and more have been discovered with all sorts of bits and pieces of the New Testament in them, some of them going back as early, we think, as the second century, some of them the third or fourth century. There's lots from the third and fourth century, many of them only containing little snippets, little bits of this and that, but then some of the great ones containing more or less everything that we know as the New Testament, and often sometimes confusingly other things as well that we might not have expected there, like, for instance, um, the Wisdom of Solomon or um, the, the, uh, some of the books that we think of as the, quote, apostolic fathers. So um, the manuscript tradition often throws up all sorts of puzzling and perplexing questions to us, and we run into this again and again. My own take on John 8, it's John 8 verses 1 to 11, I think, isn't it? That's With right. the lead-in from the end of John 7. It would be John yes. 7, 53, which 53. is a kind of transition. That's right. Um, and then 8, 1 through to 8, 11. Um, my own take is this. It does feel awkward where it is in that um, it seems to interrupt the flow of John's story at that point. And it may be that because of the awkwardness, the literary awkwardness, some scribes had moved it, or maybe some scribes had put it in there where it wasn't originally there. However, John's Gospel has quite a few awkward transitions, and some people say that's because it was tied together with string later on. Other people say that's because it wasn't edited very much, but it was as John left it, uh, and it was not really smoothed out in the way that some other writings were. So, you see, these debates go on. And frankly, they don't bother me that much, because the story here 
is such a characteristic story of Jesus. And by the way, we normally talk about it as the women, the woman caught in adultery. But as a friend of mine said to me once, it actually ought to be called the men caught in hypocrisy. Um, but <laughs> yes, you know, w- yes. w- why have we called it that when in fact the real villains of the piece are these angry men who are going to take out their own frustrations on this solo woman who was only one part in, in a two-part event, we assume. But anyway, that, that's, that's kind of a moral question. But then um, my best guess is that it was somewhere in the tradition very early on and that because it was apparently quite shocking in that so many people in the early church really were worried about what is this opening the floodgates to, some will have cautiously removed it, and then others will have put it, it sometimes occurs in other places. I think when the New English Bible was first published, they put the they put this story, um, tacked it on to the end of the gospel, rather than putting it in the middle as it is here. So um, these textual issues sometimes worry people who really, I remember hearing Michael Ramsey once talk about people who think that the Bible descended from heaven in black leather covers, complete (laughs) with maps. Um, And, you know, if if that's your view of the Bible, then that needs shaking up a bit. But that doesn't mean that it isn't the book that God wanted us to have. Um, And in a sense, the warts and all nature of it, the fact that there are textual puzzles and bits which look as if somebody had missed them out or transcribed them differently or whatever, that's a way of saying this is a book the church has lived with and struggled Mm. with, and we have to live with it and struggle with it as well. I mean, it's very interesting, for instance, in the passages about divorce, divorce and remarriage in Matthew 5 or Matthew 18, for instance, um, uh, or, or Mark 10, that there are Uh, Lots and lots of textual variations, as though the early church is trying to say, we need to give pastoral guidance on this. Perhaps what Jesus meant was this or that or the other. Uh, Whereas in some other great moral questions, there are no textual variants at all, because they're all absolutely up to speed. So all this is going on, and it doesn't mean we don't have the book God wanted us to have. It means every generation is called to wrestle with it afresh and say, so how do we then live with this text now and use the best wisdom from earlier commentators to make it our own? Uh, I'm sure that still leaves lots of questions unanswered, but that would be the starting point that Mm. I would have. Mm. No, I think that was was really helpful. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, Let's go to another person's question on uh, another gospel. This is Luke, um, but it's from Ada in Romania. Lovely to know that you're listening in Romania, Ada. And Ada says, I don't understand very well what Jesus is teaching in Luke 11, verses 5 to 12. Is it really insisting prayers of petition will be answered? Or does he mean only particular requests, for instance, those we already know are part of the coming of his kingdom or his will being done on earth, like in Luke 18? Does he only mean here we should not give up praying for justice, for instance? I've always struggled with petitionary prayers. I resonate with asking for wisdom, patience, etc. to get through a difficulty, but I find it hard to ask God to change the difficulty. What if it's not his will? What would be the point of insisting? Wouldn't an attitude of thy will be done be better to prepare me to accept whatever comes or more helping in seeing what God wants from me in those very circumstances rather than praying to escape them? Of course, this excludes the really desperate situations in which one can only cry for deliverance. And just perhaps for the context of this, um, let's just read Luke eleven five to 12. Hmm. 
Um, and again, if I, I'll do it for my NRSV, um, Tom, um, mm. this, it puts it this way there. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, do not bother me. The door has already been locked and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I went a little bit beyond Ada's um, particular verses, but uh, it gives a sense of the, the, the passage there. And, and yes, it does sound like Jesus is saying, ask and you'll get it, you know um quite quite blatant almost um and, and i can see why ada struggles with that you know that's not the way it tends to work in practice and she almost feels you know embarrassed asking in that director sort of way so what what's your wisdom on this tom yes yes thanks um th- this is this is a, a a constant puzzle which many people have quite rightly wrestled with and i think we we tend to uh in one direction or another, but this is very crisp, sharp teaching, and this parable of the friend at midnight is is very clear that the friend actually is settling down to sleep, um, all the children in bed, please don't bother me, but nevertheless we've got to do this, and there are many, many stories down through Christian history of great saints, men and women, who have said, in effect, right, I'm going to take this on, and I'm going to pray for this particular situation, this particular person, and I'm jolly well not going to give up. And I remember discussing this with my spiritual director many years ago, uh, and, and, and he said to me, yes, something like this, you pray about it every day as part of your daily prayers, and you put it before the Lord, and sometimes you will get the answer within two or three days, sometimes it may be two or three years, but you just mustn't give up. And sometimes, of course, the answer will be that as you pray for it, gradually God opens your eyes to see this may not be the best thing for you to be praying for right now. There may be other things. And sometimes it's as though God takes all the energy of that prayer, which I believe is a spirit-given energy. I think the Spirit stirs, the Holy Spirit stirs us up to pray. And even if we, because of our minds and our wandering ideas, are misdirected, God will take that energy and use it to bring about something else, which is, in fact, the thing that he wants for us. And I've seen that many times in my own life and that of others, that people who pray fervently for a particular thing, that is not wasted, even if it was, in fact, not God's best will at the time, because then something else will happen and they will look and say... That is so much better than what I was thinking of and praying for. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't give me the specific thing I was praying for, but you're now giving me this instead. And and I think that is so many, many times. And I think we today, like Ada, and, and bless you, Ada, I very much hear what you say. We we maybe have tried it perhaps when we were young and prayed for this or that or the other and it didn't happen or prayed for somebody to be, to recover from serious illness and then they died anyway. What are we to say about that? 
Part of the answer is that the New Testament is full of that puzzle itself, that the early church prayed for this and it happened and they prayed for that and it didn't. And the climax of that is, of course, Jesus himself praying with great drops of blood sweating from his head and face, um, praying that somehow the cup would pass from him. And the answer is no. And if even Jesus earnestly wanted one particular thing to which the answer was no, then we shouldn't be surprised if sometimes that's going to be so for us as well, because we are called to share his passion, to share his pain. But yes, at the heart of it, of course, and Luke goes this way, is the prayer for the Holy Spirit, just like later on in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 17, he talks about the prayer for justice, the people of God longing for God to put the world right. It is always right to pray that God will put the world right and that he will apply that to the particular situations of which we're aware. And how God uses that is, is his business. I think we need to err on the side of being more specific. I'm not terribly good at doing that myself, but uh, again and again, I think that's what we should be doing. Take mm. this seriously and then make the modifications within it rather than saying, no, no, Jesus can't have meant it. We, we just have to pray vaguely. I think God likes specifics. Yes. And and I, I, I think maybe that just just in terms of the, the parable that is used of the friend who's yes. unwilling to get up initially and but because the friend keeps bothering him he eventually does it i mean is jesus using that to say event you know if you ask hard enough god will eventually be bothered or is it no god's not even like that god's willing and ready like a father to to answer your prayer yes but obviously yes. that comes with with that caveat of it may not be answered in quite the way you're thinking um and, and so on yes well well quite and i've often reflected on the situation of devout Jews in between, if you like, Malachi and Matthew, in, in the last few centuries BC, where there are many devout Jews, and we have some of their writings, who are longing for God to put the world right, to put Israel right, to, to, to get rid of sin, to enable people to love him properly, etc. And they are praying for that and longing for that. And finally, after 400 years plus, we get Simeon and Anna in the temple seeing this little baby brought in, and they realize the prayers have been answered at last. And, and I think of Israel waiting all that time devoutly and longing. And the letter to the Hebrews says, you know, there are many, many people who were longing to see this thing, and now we have this revelation. And Jesus himself says, many prophets and, and devout people longed to see what you disciples see, and they didn't see it, and now you do. In other words, don't be surprised that you have to wait and pray for something which you may not even see the answers to in your own lifetime. Sometimes God comes right out and surprises us, and it happens the next day or the next week. Sometimes we have to wait a long time. That's his business, not ours. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, final question. Um, Aaron in Iowa. Now, this is a biggie um, and you won't be able to do it justice in the time we've got left on but we'll give it our best shot um, because this is on Romans um, and specifically um, Aaron wants to know Romans 4.13 states the promise that he Abraham would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law but through the righteousness of faith. But says Aaron as I read it when looking at the story in Genesis 15 God promises Abraham, then Abram, a reward, which is presumably the land. 
Abraham wonders what reward can be given to him since it will be given to someone who is not his descendant. But God reassures Abraham he will have a descendant to pass the reward on to by promising him his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham believes God and it is reckoned to him as righteousness. So the promise of land and descendants is made to Abraham and it's because he believed God would make good on those promises that Abraham was credited with righteousness. But Paul says the promise came to Abraham through his faith when clearly God already planned to reward him before Abraham had faith that God would give him his reward. So did Paul make a mistake? Asks Aaron and goes on to say, is the reward spoken of in Genesis 15 referring to the descendants only or and so after his faith in God for that promise is God giving him the extra reward of land as well? I admit a case could be made for this solution, but it only fits if we read Genesis 15 in light of Romans 4.13. With Romans 4.13 set aside, it seems much more likely that God has a reward of land to give to Abraham and a reward of descendants on top of that. Am I nitpicking or overthinking this, says Aaron? So I don't know if everyone listening <laughs> followed all of that, but give us a sense of what you think Aaron's getting at here, Tom, and what, oh, what, what your yes. solution to this, I mean... this problem might be. I, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I feel about this question like the, the famous answer given by somebody um, in Ireland who, when asked for instructions, said, well, if I was going to Dublin, I wouldn't be starting from here. Um, you know, <laughs> in, in other words, I, I want to shift the whole thing back a few gears. And in order to explain this properly would take an hour or so. And Romans 4 is one of the most fascinating, one of the sort of top 15, maybe most fascinating chapters in Paul. And I have, of course, written about it quite a lot elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And if Aaron doesn't have this already, then there is a long article by me on uh, Paul and the Patriarch, it's called, which is in the collection of articles that I published some years ago called Pauline Perspectives. Um, and also it's discussed at length in my commentary on Romans and also in my big book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. So anything I say now is just a little pointer towards those much fuller discussions. I think two things stand out from the way that Aaron said all this. And it's all, I don't mind about nitpicking and overthinking. We've got to do that. We've got to delve down. These things are deep and rich. But the point of the Abraham story in Genesis, um, you know, what Paul makes of it is what Paul makes of it. The point of the Abraham story in Genesis is that the world has gone horribly wrong. The story from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 runs from Adam and Eve um, and the fall and then the first murder, Cain murdering Abel and then, and then the Noah episode and then ultimately the Tower of Babel and the whole world is a mess. And then in order to reclaim his world for himself, God chooses Abraham. And the fascinating thing about this is that God wants to think about land and family and so God chooses a childless nomad and says, now, this is how I'm going to do it, which is almost funny, as though right from the start, it is, of course, all of grace. It's all of God's gift. It's all of God's plan. So that's the, the first and most important thing. And the reward which God says to Abraham, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great at the beginning of, uh, of Genesis 15 is what's picked up by Paul in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, where he talks about the reward to the one who works. His reward is not calculated thus, but thus. Um, in, in other words, uh, it's, it's not for Abraham about 
Abraham earning it. It's about God's gift. But how does God's gift then get received? And that's the, the, the so, so the, the first thing I want to say is God's plan is to reclaim the whole world. So when Paul says the promise to Abraham and his descendant that they should inherit the world indicates already what you have very clearly in scripture in Psalm 2, for instance, that when God said to Abraham, here's this land, this is an advance beginning of a claim on the whole creation. God says to David, um, I will, and David's son, I will make the nations your possession, the ultimate parts of the world your inheritance, which is the extension of the Abrahamic promise as God always intended. And for that, God wants to give Abraham not just um, the family Isaac, Jacob, etc., but an uncountable family of descendants like the stars of heaven. And Paul is quite clear that this involves Abraham believing that God would give him this vast uncountable family who would then inherit the world. As Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Um, and so this all depends on a view of Genesis which Paul shares, which is that this isn't about somebody being justified and so going to heaven, as in some traditional Western theology, but about God's people being the advance guard of the family through whom God will reclaim the whole world and fill it with his own personal presence. So then when Aaron talks about um, Abraham uh, being credited with righteousness. We have to read that phrase in the way that Genesis intends it and the way that Paul intends it, which is that being reckoned as righteous has to do with God making the covenant. The only other place in scripture that that occurs is in Psalm 106, where Phineas interposes with his spear with the people who are being wicked in the camp and uh, the psalm says that was reckoned to him as righteousness from that day onwards. Every other time Phineas' story is told in the book of Numbers, right the way on through Jew Jewish tradition, it is always about God making the covenant with Phineas. So reckoned as righteousness is a shorthand in Hebrew, and then Paul is picking it up, for God establishing the covenant. And so God establishes the covenant and the marker, the thing which marks Abraham out as God's covenant partner, as people have sometimes said, is his belief. And so Paul is saying, therefore, the children of Abraham who will inherit the promise are the ones who share Abraham's faith, faith, which, as he goes on to say, is that God will give life where there is no life. God will give life out of death as Abraham believed, so we believe in Jesus who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So this involves a rethinking of promise, covenant, land, family, justification itself. Uh, I think I've taken about seven minutes to do that. I'm sorry that's so brief. There is, of course, much, much more to be said, but that's for starters. Yeah. Um, well, do check out, um, Aaron, for more, some of the uh, some of the, the the particular resources that Tom has mentioned already, including obviously the commentary on Romans, might be a good place to start. But also uh, some of the others, I'll try and include them in links from today's show. Tom, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Um, God bless you. Uh, all the very best, and thank you for answering so many of these questions today. And we will see you on another edition of the podcast very soon. 
Thanks so much for being with us on today's show. Just a reminder that our show partner, NT Wright Online, are offering a free ebook from Tom on the Book of Acts to podcast listeners, and there are links to that in the show notes from today. And if you want more from today's show, do go to our page at asknttwright.com. Uh, you'll find links there if you want to unbelievable.live, where you can get all the high-definition teaching from Tom from this year's Unbelievable Conference. Uh, but you can also find links to further shows, further resources, and indeed ways to support the show as well if you'd like to do that thanks for being with us this week next week really exciting show for you uh, bringing tom into dialogue with richmond wandera he's a pastor out in uganda in a special show brought to you in partnership with compassion international see you for that next time